0: birth bruja podcast radical transformative empowering birth work in all its nuances reproductive justice racial justice reclaiming ancestral wisdom decolonizing the birth space here my friends we go deep join us each month as we chat with activists scholars healers community wellness workers birthing folk and beyond to explore topics from their roots
1: to their leaves It hurts to always prove your worth. They won't make it easy, but baby, believe me, your life is precious and you'll be
0: alright. You are listening to episode 13. Part 1 of the Bookworm series, where we are reading chapters from Birthing Justice, Black Women, Pregnancy, and Childbirth, edited by Julia Chenier-Opara and Alicia D. Bonaparte. This book is a collection of articles that place Black women's voices at the center of the conversation around what should be done to fix the violent maternity system of this country. By placing Black women's agency at the foreground of the emerging birth justice movement, we are best able to identify the ways in which systemic oppression contribute to the modern birth experience within the U.S. and what we can do to change the shockingly horrific Black maternal and infant mortality rates. This book, and especially this episode's chapter, is a must-read for any and all birth workers. Birth affirmations and hip squeezes aren't going to do shit in changing oppressive birth culture unless we pair it with critical thinking and action. To support this process, I have joined up with Tabitha Thomas, a biracial politicized healer and somatic coach, to launch the first session of the Birth Bruja Book Club. Starting in September 2019, we will join with folks across the country to dive into the featured book of this series, Birthing Justice go to birthbruja.com to learn more. The chapter covered in this episode is the opening to the book entitled Beyond Cohesion and Malign Neglect, Black Women and the Struggle to Birth Justice, written by Julia chenier Obara with Black Women Birthing Justice. It begins with the birth stories of two Black women who, a journey through history to outline the racist, sexist, and classist origins of obstetric medicine and the ways in which these systems have shaped today's birth culture and continues with an exploration of the birth justice movement. Without further delay, my friends, let us begin. Beyond coercion and Malign Neglect, Black Women and the Struggle for Birth Justice Written by Julia Chenier-Opara with Black Women Birthing Justice. Birth Stories, A Beginning When I got pregnant with my first daughter, I was just 19. My mother was a doula and I had listened to enough stories to know that I wanted a natural birth. I wanted to labor at home, I didn't want medicine, and I wanted her to coach me through it. But I had little idea how much stood in the way of my vision for my birth. At my 38-week prenatal visit, the doctor announced that my blood pressure was too high and I needed to have the baby right then. I was rushed to delivery, hooked up to an IV, and strapped with wires to monitor my blood pressure and the baby's heartbeat. I felt like a patient, unable to resist the things they were doing to my body. By now, I was scared. My blood pressure kept going up and I felt completely powerless and unable to move. They gave me Pitocin, and the labor pain started to get really painful. The contractions were so harsh and artificial. My mother arrived and tried to coach me, but the pain was too intense, so I told them to give me the epidural. I lay in the bed defeated and powerless until I was fully dilated and feeling the pressure to push, but there was no doctor around, and so the nurses told me to wait. Finally, the doctor came and I pushed until I was tired, and I didn't want to do it anymore. But mom said, if you don't push her out, they're going to cut you. When Zaniya came, she was only 4 pounds, 14 ounces. They took her away from me. The doctor stitched me up, and the nurse put me in a wheelchair and took me to the postpartum room. They didn't clean me up. I remained covered in blood and afterbirth for about 6 hours until an African-American nurse came and washed me. It was just horrible. It was hard for us to breastfeed because Zaniya wasn't latching on. One nurse put a tube on my nipple with formula to encourage her, but another nurse told me I should just give her a bottle. By the time we got home, the connection with my baby just wasn't there. The relationship was hard and I was in pain. It took some time to get over the postpartum depression and gain my confidence as a new mother. I started to believe that women should not feel this way after bringing life into this world. I read up about the medical industry and started my journey to become a birth revolutionary. When I got pregnant again two years later, we decided to have a home birth so that I could be fully active and present for the birth. I pushed out Zwenia, squatting in my bathroom, encouraged by the sweet voice of my midwife and surrounded by my community. Ronisha ends her story and breathes deeply, as if to fully absorb what she had shared. There are tears, laughter, and murmurs of affirmation as the women sitting around her honor the testimony. This is a sharing circle, an intimate healing journey where Black women come together to share stories of pain, struggle, joy, and transformation in order to make sense of our experiences, heal birth trauma, and create an alternative vision of birth in Black communities. Who would like to go next? Janier begins her story. A few days after I learned that I was finally pregnant, I found myself in the hospital. A reaction to a fertility drug I had taken led up to a buildup of fluid in my abdomen, and my belly swelled as if I were six months pregnant. When the pressure on my lungs began to make me gasp for breath, I was rushed to the hospital. I began a 10-day fight for my daughter's life and for my own. By the time I left the hospital, I was weak, anemic, 10 pounds underweight, and drained of confidence in my body. My OBGYN did nothing to rebuild my faith in my body's natural ability to birth. Instead, pointing to my quote-unquote advanced maternal age, end quote, and fibroids, she was dismissive of my desire for vaginal birth. I was so demoralized that I continued obediently to show up for the stressful and speedy checkups without thinking that perhaps it could be different. In my final trimester, a prenatal yoga instructor asked me a question that began my journey to birth justice. Do the people who will be at your birth support your vision for your birth experience? At my next doctor's visit, I asked her if she would support me in seeking a vaginal birth. It became clear that she might not even be at my birth, that I could be faced with a stranger in that most intimate and vulnerable moment, and that any birth plan I developed with her would be irrelevant. I asked spirit for courage, and at eight months, I left my ob and hired one of only two midwives licensed to deliver babies at my local hospital. The few visits I had with my midwife were miraculous. She was part grandmother, part therapist, and part midwife. I had found her just in time. In the final weeks of my pregnancy, I began to deal with painful feelings related to having been relinquished by my mother at birth. It started when a wave of guilt hit me as I walked past the newborns in the neonatal care unit after attending a birthing class. In the days and nights that followed, I experienced body memories of that early separation. The thought of going to a hospital to give birth terrified me. My midwife listened attentively and gently but firmly talked with me about my fears. This is your new birth story, she told me. This time you get to make it turn out differently. By the time I went into labor, I was beginning to step into my power. I invited a circle of women to witness and guide the birth, including my midwife, doula, and close friends. We turned the hospital room into a sanctuary. With their support, pushing out my baby girl was a powerful, sacred, and healing experience. These stories teach us a great deal about Black women and the maternal health care system in the United States. It may be tempting to read them as cautionary tales about what happens when a patriarchal medical establishment seeks to control women's bodies, or as an uplifting affirmation of women's ability to take back their power and birth naturally. But this would ignore the complexity of black women's experiences of pregnancy and childbirth, which are shaped not simply by violence and cohesion by patriarchal institutions, but also by the multifaceted ways in which gender interacts with interlocking systems of race, class, age, ability, sexuality, and nation. Ronesha's desire to determine her own birth story was undermined by race, class, gender-based controlling images of irresponsible Black pregnant teens, and by dismissal statistics regarding black infant and maternal mortality. Nearly half of black girls in the United States get pregnant at least once before they are 20, and when they carry their pregnancies to term, their children are more likely to drop out of high school, experience incarceration, face unemployment, have health problems, and become teenage parents. Since the early 1980s, conservatives and liberals alike have constructed teen pregnancy as a serious social problem and created programs to reduce it. The former by promoting chastity and parental control, the latter by improving teens' access to sex education and contraception. Despite their different political agendas, these programs share in common a tendency to censure teen mothers, to assume that all teen pregnancies are the outcome of irresponsible sex, and to incorporate a heavy dose of paternalism and judgment of teens who are deemed in need of greater personal responsibility regarding sex. Viewed through the lens of this narrative of Black teenage irresponsibility, Renatia was assumed to be incompetent to determine her own labor, delivery, and postpartum experience. Her desires to experience childbirth without medical interventions and to nurse her low birth weight baby were easily dismissed. Renatia's interactions with medical staff were also impacted by the specter of high rates of Black infant and maternal mortality. In the United States, these poor outcomes spark a fear of litigation in case of maternal or infant death. In California, where Renesha gave birth, black women are three times more likely to perish due to pregnancy-related causes than white women, and their babies are more than twice as likely to die within their first year. OBGYNs may be particularly fearful of litigation when they serve low-income women, partly because of higher risk factors and partly due to the belief that poor women sue more, leading to a defensive medicine and more medical interventions. This culture of fear is an ever-present undercurrent in labor and delivery wards, and is evoked by medical staff who use the question, you do want a healthy baby, don't you, to elicit compliance and unruly birthing women. Only when she removed herself from medical supervision was Renesha able to find space for agency as a young Black woman choosing to deliver and nurse her baby. Whereas Renesha pushed out her second baby in her home in deep East Oakland, a neighborhood impacted by gun violence, drug dealing, and poverty, Chanyera lived in a solidly middle-class neighborhood in the East Oakland Hills. Class matters, but not always in the way we might assume. The assumption that low-income Black women have low birth weight babies solely because of poor nutrition and living conditions, or that class, not race, determines poor maternal outcomes, has been refuted by evidence that Black professional women are not protected by their relative affluence. In part, this may be due to the impact of stressors experienced by Black women as outsiders within racially stratified workplace and public environments. Fortune year, this showed up as an internal sense of pressure to return to work before she was fully recovered from her hospitalization, due to her internalization of the black Superwoman myth. This myth can be fatal. Stress and overwork during pregnancy can result in premature birth and low birth weight, two key factors in black infant mortality. Class may not defend professional black women from poor maternal outcomes but it does matter. In the context of a medical industrial complex in which the ability to pay determines access, class matters a great deal to poor women who cannot afford birth alternatives. It also matters to older women and queer women who may need assistance from reproductive technologies to get pregnant. But while economic privilege enabled Cheniere to overcome infertility, it did not protect her from a stressful pregnancy she had to face the possibility of terminating her pregnancy when a blood test indicated a high probability of a fatal birth defect. This test was ultimately proven inaccurate, but only after it had caused immense stress during an already difficult pregnancy. Black women over 35, like Chenier, are subject to a double jeopardy. First, they are considered by medical professionals to be of quote-unquote advanced maternal age. And are likely to be pressured to undergo invasive genetic testing. Second, they are considered to be an at-risk subset. Older women of an at-risk group, all black women. Thus, race, ageism, and disabledism in the form of societal devaluing of non-normative pregnancies place immense pressure on these women. Separated by age and class, Ronisha and Cheniere were united by a common determination to resist cohesion and control and to lay claim to a birth experience that did not violate their bodies or their spirits. They and other women are organizing with Black Women Birthing Justice, a national organization that aims to create a space for Black women and trans-slash-gender nonconforming parents to tell their stories, to challenge medical violence, and to reclaim childbirth. This book is about the struggle for birth justice being waged by Black women like Ronesha Engineer in labor and delivery wards, birth centers, legislative chambers, and living rooms across the United States and internationally. It is about the birth revolutionaries who are working to change attitudes, practices, and legislation to reclaim a legacy of traditional midwifery to challenge the cohesion and criminalization of pregnant black women and trans/gender nonconforming people and to transform lives one birth at a time reexamining reproductive justice Since the 1980s, black women and women of color seeking solidarity in resisting reproductive coercion and violence have been able to turn to the reproductive justice movement. This movement is made up of national agencies, such as the Black Women's Health Imperative and the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health. Faith-based and scholarly networks, such as Seminarians for Reproductive Justice, ReproNet, and Law Students for Reproductive Justice, and community-based organizations such as Black Women for Reproductive Justice, Black Women for Wellness, Young Women United, and Forward Together. Perhaps the most visible face of the movement is SisterSong, a national coalition representing more than 80 organizations that, for over a decade, under the leadership of veteran activist and contributor Loretta Ross, has created a voice for women of color activists in the wider reproductive rights community. The term reproductive justice was coined by women of color as a radical, inclusive, and intersectional political analysis and praxis that challenged the narrow view of the mainstream reproductive rights movement, In advocating for reproductive rights defined by Asian communities for reproductive justice as the right to have children, not have children, and to parent the children we have in safe and healthy environments. The Reproductive Justice Frameworks looks at the multiple ways in which women of color and poor women are denied reproductive freedom. These include sterilization abuses, the exposure of immigrant women workers to pesticides and other chemicals that are hazardous to maternal health, and the promotion of dangerous contraceptives in communities of color. In addition, reproductive justice organizations have begun to explore the ways that race, economic status, and gender identity combine to generate lack of access to reproductive health care and passive eugenics directed at trans/gender nonconforming people of color. In contrast to the Big Four reproductive rights organizations—NOW, NARAL, Pro-Choice America, Planned Parenthood and the Feminist Majority Foundation, which have tended to restrict their analysis to a pro-choice, pro-life binary, reproductive justice advocates push us to go beyond individualist and consumerist demands for choice and instead to work against the many systemic threats against the lives and autonomy of all those marginalized on the base of gender. Reproductive justice proponents have made a significant contribution to the battle for reproductive freedom, They have popularized the concept of reproductive justice through conferences, workshops, and teaching materials for use in high schools, colleges, and universities. They have demonstrated that reproductive health cannot be separated from the many survival issues facing communities of color, and that a multi-sector, intersectional approach is essential. They have modeled the use of an international human rights framework as a foundation for grassroots activism in the United States refuting the myth that human right abuses occur, quote-unquote, somewhere else. They have shed light on the mainstream reproductive rights movement's complicity with racism and eugenics and challenged that movement to become accountable to women of color, poor women, young women, women with disabilities, and trans-slash-gender nonconforming people and they have countered the alienation of women of color and built a diverse and vibrant movement to challenge reproductive inequities. Despite their commitment to make visible and challenge reproductive oppression in all forms, reproductive justice organizations and advocates have been slow to confront the medical violence and cohesion that women like Ronesha and Chinier experience during pregnancy, labor, and childbirth. In 2010, National Advocates for Pregnant Women, NAPW, issued a call to reproductive justice organizations to extend their advocacy to include women's treatments during labor in childbirth. While immensely respectful of the work of the reproductive justice movement, NAPW made visible the inconsistencies that arise when the human right to a safe, respectful birth experience is not seen as a central part of the reproductive justice agenda. Reproductive justice advocates fight for access to safe contraception and abortion for low-income women and women of color, but they seldom defend the right of birthing women to out-of-hospital births, vaginal births after cesareans, or midwifery care. Although they challenge the use of dangerous contraceptives such as Norplant and Deeper Provera on the grounds that they threaten women's health and autonomy, they have not made the connection between these practices and unnecessary medical interventions during childbirth. They put the racially targeted sterilization of women of color on the radar of those concerns with reproductive rights, but say little about epidemic rates of C-sections, which are disproportionately performed on African-American women. While vocal in opposing pro-life billboards that demonize black pregnant women, Coalitions like Trust Black Women have failed to comment on media depictions of women who choose home births or refuse C-sections as spoiled or irresponsible. As a result, the misconception that natural and home births and doula and midwifery care are luxury concerns of white middle-class women goes unchallenged, and the potential activism of pregnant and parenting women of color who have been touched by birth injustice remains largely untapped. At Sister Song's conference in 2011, 30 birth activists from around the United States came together to discuss the need for the reproductive justice movement to embrace birth oppression as essential concern for women of color. The activists present in that gathering called for a national movement led by women of color to challenge medical violence and cohesion during pregnancy and childbirth, to reclaim midwifery traditions in communities of color, and to raise awareness among women of color about strategies to overcome birth inequities. These demands have much in common with the goals of the alternative or natural birth movement, yet this movement has failed to mobilize Black women in large numbers. The next section explores why. Most accounts of the alternative or natural birth movement in the United States begin in 1950s and 1960s, when mostly white, college-educated women discovered readings from Europe, including Grantley Dick Reed's Childbirth Without Fear and Ferdinand Lamaze's Painless Childbirth, and began to claim their right to a joyful, empowered birth experience. These books claimed that a pain-free birth could be achieved not through numbing by anesthesia or powerful opiates, but by retraining the mind to interpret the intense sensations associated with labor as normal, rather than as a signal that something is wrong. These women challenged the treatments of childbirth as a medical event, critiqued the dangers of the high-tech management of labor and delivery and promoted out-of-hospital midwife-attended birth as a means of self-determination for women. They also drew inspiration from the women's health, civil rights, and hippie movements, as well as from granny midwives to build alternative grassroots birthing communities across the country. Perhaps the best known is The Farm a natural living community established by Anna Mae Gaskin and a group of cultural dissidents who traveled in a caravan from San Francisco to rural Tennessee. Gaskin's seminal manual, Spiritual Midwifery, challenged the hegemony of male physicians and medical technology and revived women's confidence in their ability to push out their babies with the simple philosophy that nature mostly gets it right in birth. Although important, The story of Anime Gaskin and the other white middle-class birth activists who courageously took on big medicine is incomplete. As African-American historians have demonstrated, our understanding of history depends on the social location of the storyteller and the limited perspective provided by that particular standpoint. Starting from what Patricia Hill Collins calls the subjugated knowledge of black women— we might instead start our historical narrative from the standpoint of granny midwives, African-American lay midwives who had served the black community in a tradition of spiritual calling and service since slavery. Or we might look to the seldom acknowledged immigrant midwives in Barteras from Haiti, Jamaica, and the Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico, who attended home births and supported pregnant women and new mothers in Caribbean communities in Harlem, Brooklyn, New Jersey, Boston, and beyond. These women were the living archivists and keepers of traditional birth knowledge and the sacred understanding of birth not only as a natural event, but as a ceremony. They worked with all women in their communities, regardless of ability to pay, and can be seen as the earliest practitioners of the radical concept of healthcare as a universal human right. Although early white natural birth activists saw themselves as reinvigorating the traditional knowledge of granny midwives, their claim to this legacy presents a false narrative of white midwives following in the footsteps of a vanishing class of black midwives. This narrative obscures both the continuing presence of black midwifery from the 1950s to the present day, and the tensions that have existed between contemporary white and black midwives. While granny midwives were gradually being eliminated due to the turf wars fought by white physicians and the efforts of white women to modernize maternal health care, young black women themselves were continuing the work of providing traditional birth support to poor and disenfranchised women. They formed organizations that mirrored those established by black women in the 1970s, such as the National Black Feminist Organization and the Kambahi River Collective, as a result of middle-class women's refusal to tackle white privilege and racism within the women's liberation movement and in society at large. They had a dual agenda, reflecting the intersections of race, gender, and class, and the duality of medical neglect and cohesion in the lives of the women they served. In 1976, Shafia Monroe Motivated in part by the dominance of white women in the modern lay midwifery movement, founded the Traditional Childbearing Group in Boston. Its dual goals were to encourage African-American women to consider midwife-assisted home birth and to address the high rate of adverse reproductive outcomes within the Black community and the medical system's difficulty in providing community-oriented care. Similarly, the Harlem Birth Action Committee, under the leadership of Nankululeko Taimba, offered midwifery care but also worked to valorize and support poor and homeless pregnant women and to challenge health inequities and birth outcomes in the Black community. As a result of this bifurcated history, Krista Craven powerfully argues the struggle against the management of childbirth by a predominantly male obstetrical profession should not be viewed as a tale of sisters transcending difference in order to claim reproductive freedom for all women. Instead, battles for alternative birth have been marked by conflictual and uneven relationships that reflect the race and class tensions and inequities of the time. Despite assumptions that pregnancy and childbirth are the great equalizers, marking a time when women are defined by their gender more than any other identity, birthing women are in fact actors differentiated by race and class. The dichotomy at the center of understandings of natural birth is itself racialized. Natural birth advocates invoke women's right to natural, empowered, and joyful births, attended by women and free of medical interventions such as pain medications, epidurals, and cesareans. This natural experience is depicted as something that has been stolen from all women by patriarchal medical establishment as means to control and commodify women's bodies. Yet this story is only partially true, and what it leaves out is revealing. When natural birth advocates portray medicalized birth as a patriarchal invention by male doctors, they gloss over the racial origins of the field of obstetrics. South Carolina physician J. Marion Sims, honored as the father of American gynecology, developed instruments such as the speculum and medical techniques that laid the foundation for modern-day obstetrics. Sims' medical advances would not have been possible without unhindered access to the bodies of 11 enslaved black women at a time when physicians commonly dealt with white women's gynecological problems by touch only to safeguard their honor. The enslaved women had vesicovaginal fistulas, ruptures between the vagina and the bladder and rectum that caused constant leakage of urine and fecal matter. Harriet Washington tells the grueling story of the five years during which Sims performed numerous experimental surgeries, slicing open the vaginal tissues of the women he had addicted to morphine as his assistants held them down by force, rationalizing that black women were closer to livestock than humans and thus had a greater pain tolerance. Sims refused to use anesthesia on the women, even though a dose of ether could have spared them their agony. One of the women, Anarka, subsequently became the first successful fistula patient, but only after 30 torturous surgeries. These soul-destroying experiments were carried out on Anarka and her sisters, not because of their gender alone. Instead, they suffered because, as chattel under a system of racial and economic oppression, they had no means to protect themselves from torture in the name of medical progress. And they were not alone. As Washington documents, Louisiana surgeon François-Marie Provost, known for introducing the cesarean section to American obstetrics in the 1820s, first conducted the experimental procedure on an enslaved laboring woman. At the time, opening the abdomen was considered a death warrant, and physicians would typically rather destroy the infant's skull to save a mother with pelvic abnormalities. Nearly all subsequent surgeries carried out by Louisiana surgeons to perfect the risky but profitable procedure were also conducted on enslaved Black women, continuing the common practice of offering up Black women's lives to the altar of medical science. As coerced obstetric research subjects, Black women have suffered intolerable pain, disability, and even death as well as the loss of their infants, so that white physicians and their white female patients could benefit from the perfected medical procedures. Washington labels this process and its ongoing legacy of health inequities, medical apartheid. The development of medicalized childbirth owes much to this system of medical apartheid and can accurately be described as obstetrical apartheid, a convergence of patriarchal medical heroics, racialized medical violence, economic exploitation, and a cavalier disregard of Black women's well-being. The history of medicated pain relief during childbirth is another example of obstetrical apartheid. Medicated pain relief was promoted by male physicians in the early 20th century, in part to lure laboring women out of their homes into the hospitals and to present doctors as better equipped to attend birth than midwives. Twilight sleep, induced by a combination of morphine and the amnesiac drug scopolamine, allowed women to remain semi-conscious but retain little memory of labor and delivery. U.S. physicians introduced the German invention after a popular campaign by white feminists and suffragists determined to access pain-free birth as a means of women's emancipation. However, Segregated hospitals in the South, as well as economic inequalities nationwide, meant that painless childbirth was offered to middle-class and affluent white women alone. In fact, medicated birth was linked to the white supremacist eugenics movement, which advocated sterilization and contraception to limit African-American, immigrant, and indigenous women's reproduction while pressing white women to have more babies as means to improve the race." Physicians claimed that by making childbirth painless, they could encourage white women to have more children, thus ensuring that the Anglo-Saxon race would not die out. At the same time, they drew on biological racism and class ideologies to justify withholding pain relief from poor women and women of color who— being closer to nature, were believed to have a greater natural ability to withstand pain and who, in any case, should not be encouraged to procreate. It would take another half-century, the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the introduction of Medicaid in 1965, for black birthing women to be ushered into the nation's hospital wards. There is a danger of romanticizing the tradition of the granny midwife and the good fortune of the African-American women they continued to serve for decades after the introduction of hospital births. It is true that many black women, along with poor rural white women, indigenous women, and immigrant women of color, continued to birth at home with the support of traditional community midwives for decades after most white birthing women came under medical management. However, midwifery was not a choice among numerous options. Instead, it resulted from hostility and neglect by white physicians and society at large. When Mildred Lee experienced difficulties during labor, her family rushed her to the closest hospital in search of a cesarean section. But it was 1964 in El Paso, Texas, and the hospital refused her entry. After several hours, she was finally admitted to the whites-only facility because her skin was light enough to pass. And doctors delivered her daughter using forceps, tearing the skin on her forehead. That little girl became Congresswoman Barbara Lee, and the birth scar from that traumatic delivery became a warrior mark, reminding her no matter how much black people have accomplished, it was less than 40 years ago when we couldn't even share a bathroom, drinking fountain, or classroom with whites. Lee continues, this history keeps me grounded and it is why I try to fight injustice wherever I see it, no matter how uncomfortable it may be for me. The painful story of the laboring woman turned away from the whites-only hospital or giving birth in a car on the way to a facility that emitted blacks is ingrained in the collective memory of African American women. In the early to mid-20th century, most Black women in the rural South lived in conditions of extreme poverty and racial repression, scratching out a living through sharecropping or domestic service. For those who had pregnancy complications or whose newborns had health problems, natural birth meant exclusion from segregated hospitals or restriction to poorly resourced, colored-only wards and delayed or denial of potentially life-saving medical treatment. Black women who migrated to Midwestern and Northern cities from the Southern states and from the Caribbean found themselves in overcrowded, overpriced tenements where tuberculosis and other infectious diseases, as well as rodents, thrived. For these women, natural birth meant delivering in the unsanitary and unsafe conditions that resulted from the neglect of profiteering landlords and the state officials who failed to hold them accountable. For too many black women and their infants, denied adequate health care and nutrition for a lifetime, natural childbirth meant a preventable death. As a result, black women had to develop a more complex politics of childbirth, one that resisted obstetrical apartheid with its double-edged sword of medical coercion and violence on the one hand and malign neglect on the other. While white middle-class women in the 1960s and 70s were building the natural birth movement, Black women activists focused their energies on the civil rights and Black power movements, which promised to transform the racist living conditions that shaped Black women's vulnerability to pregnancy complications as well as the loss of their infants. In particular, civil rights activists focused on desegregating hospitals by fighting for their inclusion under the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Title VI, prohibiting allocation of government funds to any institution that engaged in racial segregation. Reflecting that era's disillusionment with the promise of integration, Black nationalists established free, autonomous health clinics and challenged racism in the medical profession as well as exploitative medical research. At the same time, many Southern and immigrant Black women, in particular, continued to birth against the grain, drawing on mother wit, intergenerational mother's wisdom, to guide their birthing decisions these women were perhaps also informed by what Washington labels black iatrophobia, a reluctance to trust white medical practitioners rooted in folk knowledge about the mistreatment of black patients and research subjects. In addition, granny midwives staged their own resistance to the suppression of traditional midwifery knowledge, deploying what Darlene Clark Hine describes as a culture of dissemblance. By appearing open to and compliant with the arrogant intrusions of the white medical establishment, while simultaneously masking their continued use of traditional herbs, birthing positions and rituals, granny midwives in the rural South negotiated a space within which they could practice their calling and retire with dignity. Finally, building on the legacy of the grannies, urban Black women played an important role in the emergence of the modern midwifery movement. These diverse strands in Black women's resistance, including the micro-resistance of individual actions and covert as well as more visible forms of activism, laid the foundation for a very different politics of childbirth, one that is a matter not only of choice, but of survival. My Birth, My Way Challenging the commodification of empowered childbirth. By the late nineteen nineties, what started as a geographically dispersed potpourri of homebirth collectives had coalesced into an organized movement with a national profile and significant victories. The development of the alternative birth movement into a sophisticated political lobby group and semi-organized social movement owed a great deal to organized medicine's efforts to stamp out home birth and midwifery. Medical practitioners use a number of strategies to tempt, scare, or coerce unruly laboring women back into the hospitals. Hospitals incorporated some of the natural birth movement's demands by allowing family members to attend births, reducing the use of routine interventions such as enemas and forceps, and created more hospitable birth centers. At the same time, physicians and medical societies portrayed home births as unsafe and unsanitary, despite evidence that midwife attended home births had as good or even better outcomes as hospital births. Not satisfied with these indirect approaches, some physicians sought to eliminate the competition and thus force laboring women out of their homes. Addressing the midwife problem involved convincing legislators to tighten restrictions and impose physician supervision in states where midwifery was legal, and reporting individual midwives to law enforcement in states where it was outlawed. The surveillance and criminalization of their birth attendants outraged home birthers, generated favorable publicity for the movement against medical control over childbirth and made the legalization and licensing of midwifery a priority. As a result, with the founding of the Midwives Alliance of North America, M-A-N-A, in 1993, midwives became organized as a national force. At around the same time, home birth mothers and midwives came together nationally to fight for women's rights to midwifery care, founding Citizens for Midwifery in 1996. When home birth mothers and midwives began to pursue their battles in the legislative arena, they engaged in what veteran civil rights organizer Ella Baker disparagingly called legalism. According to Baker, making legal reform the primary vehicle for social change results in the alienation of ordinary people as the more educated and privileged become the only ones with the training and expertise to make strategic decisions. Baker advocated participatory democracy involving direct action, minimization of hierarchy and professionalism, and participation of the marginalized and disenfranchised in society at every level. As Baker might have anticipated, the alternative birth movement's shift in focus from building autonomous communities to influencing state legislative machinery has accompanied its increasing professionalization and stratification. Black midwives have remained on the margins of the statewide and national networks, and those who have gotten involved have complained of high levels of stress if they have sought to convince a predominantly white middle class leadership to take black women's concerns seriously. As recently as 2012, four leading members of MANA's Women of Color Council, including the chair, resigned, stating in an allusion to the popular film on domestics in the Jim Crow South, we are not the help, 2012 version. This treatment is not good for us mentally, physically, emotionally, and psychologically. This is the stress that kills us in so many ways, drains our energy, and distracts our focus. Despite or perhaps in part because of the stratification, the alternative birth movement has successfully influenced lawmakers and popular opinion. Since 1976, 28 states have legalized or licensed direct entry or independent midwives, ensuring that women in those states who can afford one can have a midwife attended home birth. In part, these successes have been due to the alignment of the movement with hegemonic ideas about race, motherhood, and consumerism. Rather than arguing for safe, empowering perinatal care as a human right that should be available to all women regardless of ability to pay, the movement mobilized popular ideologies about the rights of the consumer to position midwifery as an option for respectable women. As Craven explains, the strategic move enables advocates to shed their radical, hippie, and feminist origins and to reinvent themselves as good citizen-consumers as a result, legislators opposed to feminism because of its connections to choice, the right to choose whether to carry a pregnancy, and to left-wing countercultural tendencies have found it possible to support the consumer right of white middle class mothers to purchase the birth experience they desire. Reducing birth justice to the right to shop has negative consequences, however, particularly for poor women women with disabilities, trans-slash-gender nonconforming people, and others who are constructed as recipients and dependents rather than consumer citizens. If the right to a midwife depends on the ability to pay for one, then poor women, particularly those who receive welfare, are presented as having no rights. In fact, birthing parents who rely on Medicaid are often forced to birth in urban public hospitals, which are the least likely to have the resources to create more women in patient-centered labor and delivery regimens. As such, they are perhaps the most in need of alternative midwifery care. Black women as a whole are desperately in need of birth alternatives to address our disproportionate rates of pregnancy complications, lower likelihood of receiving adequate prenatal care, and poor breastfeeding rates. Yet black women are significantly less likely than white women to have the savings at their disposal to pay out of pocket for midwifery care. The median wealth of Black women living with a partner is less than one-twentieth that of a white woman in similar circumstances. For single Black women, the situation is particularly dire. Even in their prime working years, their median wealth amounts to a mere $5. The recession and housing crisis hit Black communities particularly hard, and by 2010, 35% of black households had a zero or negative net worth, compared to 15% of white households. An alternative birth movement that demands that the state legalize and license midwifery care, but not that it provide that care to all regardless of the ability to pay, is therefore irrelevant to the majority of black women. When our income is dedicated to our own and our child's survival needs as well as to our communities, to struggling extended family members and friends, and our savings are little or non-existent, the right to consume midwifery care is a hollow one. Traditionally, midwives lived in a substance economy with the women they served, and they could attend births for little or no fee, knowing that over time the family would pay them back by whatever means necessary. Over time, modern lay midwives began to charge for their services, in part to cover the cost of maintaining the standards and records required by licensing boards. Today, a midwife attended birth, as well as prenatal and postpartum care, can cost anywhere from $3,000 to $5,000, an enormous expense for a family living paycheck to paycheck and saving for baby's essentials. Yet many health insurers limit coverage for midwifery, force women to have their babies in hospitals where midwives are not permitted to practice or charge exorbitant co-pays. By accommodating the politics of consumerism, the mainstream alternative birth movement has surrendered the wider battle for birth justice in exchange for greater freedom for the privileged few. As David Barton Smith cautions, do not confuse market-driven reforms for real choice. When health plans and providers are more driven by market conditions, care becomes more fragmented and segregated by race and income. Consumer-driven choice amounts to an abdication of public responsibility. Although the fight to legalize and license midwifery has carved out space for midwives to practice in the United States and turned the tide against the hegemonic control of the obstetrical profession, it fails to challenge the entrenched inequalities rooted in the commercialization of healthcare and the rise of the medical-industrial complex. It ignores the most vulnerable pregnant people, incarcerated women and trans gender nonconforming people, women in immigration detention centers, young women in juvenile halls who are subjugated to practices including shackling, denial of prenatal care, and inadequate nutrition, That endangers their pregnancies and stigmatize birthing parents, such as people living with a mental or physical disability or drug addiction, who battle for the right to carry their pregnancies and to receive the support they need to raise their infants. The struggle for access to birthing alternatives is inseparable from struggles for racial, economic, and social justice and the fundamental transformation of global maternal care systems. For the alternative birth movement to fulfill its stated goal of creating choices for all women, it must clearly change direction. The emerging birth justice movement, rooted in black and brown communities and informed by the stories, critiques, and dreams of marginalized, despised, and disenfranchised mothers and other birthing parents, is shaping a new vision of reproductive freedom. It is a vision of decolonized people, Shaking off colonial and patriarchal legacies, challenging racial inequities, and building new relationships defined not by commerce, but by commitments to social justice, community empowerment, and love as an insurgent practice. It is to that vision and to the chapters in this book that we now turn. Overview of the Book In 2011, members of Black Women Birthing Justice put out a call for critical essays and personal testimonies that explore African American, African Caribbean, and diasporic women's experiences of childbirth from a radical social justice perspective. Midwives, doulas, birth activists, breastfeeding advocates, home birth mothers, feminist and black studies scholars, and medical practitioners and researchers from across the United States and Canada responded. After reviewing the proposals, we identified voices that were missing or underrepresented women with disabilities, incarcerated women, drug-using women, queer women, trans-slash-gender nonconforming birthing parents, and women from Africa and the Caribbean, and made efforts to recruit contributors who could speak about these particularly marginalized experiences. As we did so, we sought to place Black women's testimonies and analyses at the center of the conversation." Social science and medical researchers tend to examine, theorize, and discuss our lives, but seldom ask us for our own interpretations of our lived realities. In contrast, we conceptualize Black women activists, mothers, and birth workers as thinkers, knowers, and doers, not merely as research subjects or medical conundrums. Even as we sought to center the lives and analyses of Black women, we were also cognizant of the danger that so doing could erase the stories and experiences of those who do not conform to or identify with binary gender identities. Trans-slash-gender-nonconforming people of color are often left out of conversations about pregnancy and childbirth justice which most often refi a binary division between pregnant and birthing women and male partners or medical practitioners. In compiling this book, we attempted to rectify that omission not only by including an essay by a trans dad, but also by being mindful about language and introducing gender-neutral terms such as birthing parent and pregnant people that remind us that people who give birth do not universally identify as women. The book has four sections that reflect our complementary goals of examining historical and contemporary birth injustice toward Black women, birthing parents and communities, and making visible individual and collective acts of resistance. The first section, Birthing Histories, continues our historical contextualization of discussions about contemporary maternal health care. Darlene Turner's oral history of her granny midwife grandmother provides an intimate insider account of childbirth during a period of transition from home to hospital. Alicia D. Bonaparte's detailed historical excavation of the role of physicians in suppressing Black midwifery in South Carolina provides us with insight into the origins of the common belief that physician-attended hospital birth is the safest and best option for laboring women. Kusina mudokwenyu Rodin, Peggy Dube, Nasser Timoyo, and Steven Munjaja's chapter explores the relationship between Western medicine and indigenous birthing practices in post-colonial Zimbabwe. The chapter refutes the romanticized images promoted by some alternative birth advocates of African women as noble savages, birthing their babies alone in the bush, untouched by Western medicine and outside history. In the second section, Beyond Medical versus Natural, Redefining Birth Injustice, our contributors expand our understanding of birth injustice beyond the narrow medical slash natural male control slash female empowerment dichotomy that is the focus of mainstream birth activism. Personal testimonies in this section push us to unpack the ways in which experiences of childbirth are shaped not only by patriarchal gender relations, but also by race, gender, normativity, class, nation, and geography. Vivian Salehana and Iris Jacob encourage us to break the deafening silence around miscarriage and loss and to rethink the meaning of natural. Marvelous Munchenj and Victoria Logan Kennedy highlight the complex relationship that Black women living with HIV have with the medical system and call on birth justice advocates to stand in solidarity with these women. Jacinda Townsend provides a personal perspective on how the global epidemic in C-sections impacts Black women. Cyrus Marcus Ware explores what it means to be a pregnant man in hypergendered spaces like fertility clinics, midwife clinics, and labor and delivery wards. Ware's story interrupts common sense assumptions relating to sex, gender, pregnancy, and challenges us to consider how a birth justice agenda can encompass a range of birthing genders. And Loretta Ross reveals how covert population control measures target Black women and argues that we need to expand our understanding of birth justice to include the right to have children, free of politics that restrict reproduction. At the end of this section, we honor Black women who have died of pregnancy-related causes by reproducing quilt blocks sewn by family members and volunteers. In medical literature, media and public policy debates, black women are often represented as pregnant bodies to be policed, carriers of at-risk infants or recipients of public health education. These representations suggest that our disproportionate risks for pregnancy complications and maternal and infant deaths are a result of irresponsible choices or unhealthy cultural behaviors. As active agents of our own lives, black women resist these depictions. In the third and fourth sections of the book, we foreground black women's acts of resistance to malign neglect, racial and sexual control, and the devaluing of black mothers and infants. In Changing Lives, One Birth at a Time, we focus on individual and interpersonal acts of resistance. Rather than organizing demonstrations, lobbying lawmakers, or distributing popular education materials, the women in this section of the book manifest birth justice in their everyday lives. The authors, who include doulas, spiritual practitioners, birthing women, and a midwife, challenge powerful and widely held beliefs about where and with whom women should give birth, decolonizing their relationships with each other and with their bodies, healing trauma, and embodying self and mother love as a radical praxis. Their brutally honest, intimate accounts remind us that birth justice activism is far more than critical analysis and political organizing alone. Instead, it is life-affirming soul work that has the power to move and change us deeply. In the final section, Taking Back Our Power, Organizing for Birth Justice, we begin to uncover the histories, strategies, and contributions of birth justice activists, Christ Anne Maglor and Julia chiniero Barra explore possibilities for alliances between dissident OBGYNs, birth workers, and birth activists through a case study of Christ Anne's VBAC activism. Ruth Hayes explores how black midwives created moments of reproductive agency during slavery and after emancipation and demonstrates how the contemporary black midwifery movement builds on this tradition and its work for reproductive freedom. Jenny Joseph, founder of the JJ Way, and Alicia D. Bonaparte describe how Jenny became a midwife activist fighting for marginalized women and their children in Florida. Finally, Priscilla A. Osin and Julia Chinieropara document activism by and for pregnant individuals in prisons and jails and urge reproductive justice and natural birth movements to develop an abolitionist politics that seeks to liberate pregnant and parenting individuals from the prison industrial complex. This short collection cannot possibly do justice to the courage, creativity, and dedication of the birth warriors who are working to transform Black women's experience of pregnancy and childbirth. We offer this book with humility about its inevitable limitations and omissions. We hope that the words gathered here inspire more Black women, women of color, and other marginalized women and trans folk to document how we are decolonizing our bodies and remaking childbirth. We believe that in your hands, this book can become a powerful tool in the struggle for birth justice. The rest is up to you. The music you heard on today's show is entitled Lullaby by Tasha. Deep gratitude to the authors and editors that so powerfully wove the book, Birthing Justice, Black Women, Pregnancy, and Childbirth. This is an extraordinary book. Buy it from your local bookstore, borrow from a friend, or check it out from the library. Learn more about the Birth Bruja Book Club by going to birthbruja.com. Follow me on social media at birthbruja to continue the
1: conversation. They never for a day in your shows, you still need to rest too. You still need to rest
0: too I've been your host, Ari guajardo Johnson. The Birth Bruja Podcast is produced by Catherine Petru of We Rise. Be sure to check out show notes for links and resources. Follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes to help us expand the impact of this work. Until next time, my friends, thank you for all the ways you show up in this world. Blessings and gratitude.
1: Your life is precious and you'll be all right. Let's lay down for